Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, the tennis podcast by fans. On today's edition of Passing Shot Meets... We chat with Britain's Marcus Willis on his career in tennis, including his memorable run at Wimbledon, his thoughts on British tennis, and what it's like to lob Roger Federer on centre court. Kim, another edition of Passing Shot Meets, our second this season, and it's one I'm really excited for, not just because we had technical difficulties last week, but I genuinely feel that as kind of British fans, our guest today has given us one of the most memorable runs at a Grand Slam in recent times. I mean, Aslan Kratsev aside, for me, for British fans, I think this is the one that sticks kind of fondest in the memory. Absolutely. And for anyone who doesn't have a clue what we're talking about, that is Wimbledon 2016. So almost uh, five years ago now. And it was indeed a very uh, magical story for for British fans. And we'll be delving into that uh, during the course of this podcast. So I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to our special guest for this evening's episode, which is Marcus Willis. Marcus, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here at The Passing Shot. Welcome onto the show. We're very pleased to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, and um, thanks for having me on. Fantastic. And how how have you been finding all the you know the latest lockdown? Are you, are you have you been staying safe? Are you are you at home with your family at the moment? I am at home at the moment. Um, I'm trying to keep fit. Actually, I've um, been going on a few runs and stuff like that. But looking forward to the courts opening up on Monday. I've already got quite a few people wanting to hit so uh yeah i'm looking forward to get back out there oh great yeah it's all kind of opening up gradually isn't it and just uh yeah i think i've been um doing well trying to keep as fit as possible as well but um obviously on a different scale to you i'm sure uh i'm not sure about that oh <laughs> 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 well, I'm not a pro- former professional uh, athlete, but um, so many of our listeners will be, um, you know, British. We are quite a, a British podcast. I think that's safe to say uh, they will be quite familiar uh, with with yourself, perhaps, and, and your time on the tour, especially that Wimbledon run, as we mentioned. Uh, but we do have quite a lot of overseas listeners, and perhaps those that aren't so familiar with yourself. So perhaps before we we go into um, detail, perhaps you could just. Give us a bit of info about how you got into the sport. Or, you know, how did you start playing tennis when you when you, when you were younger? My mum actually played badminton at quite a high level when she was younger, and uh, she had training on a Wednesday. So I used to after school go and sort of watch her, and and then I'd have a little hit in my spare time, and I started playing badminton. I got quite good at that, sort of six years old. Um, and I was yeah, I had GB trials. I was. I was a very good badminton player at that age. And then my coach at the time started doing mini tennis lessons. And I picked that up around at eight years old. And I fell in love with the sport instantly. Um, and it came to a stage where I was doing badminton training twice a week and then tennis training twice a week. And my parents said, look, 
you're gonna have to pick one <laughs> when they have, have an older sister and there's only 24 hours in a day so um, that was quite a, yeah quite an easy decision at the time I chose tennis at yeah eight nine years old um, and I gradually yeah gradually got better like the, at the start I wasn't obviously very very good and then quickly I played for my county and then ended up playing for Great Britain under 14 and yeah here I am so just kind of talking about your kind of junior days and how that transitioned on to kind of in, into kind of senior tennis was it quite a was it quite seamless it sounds like you got kind of started at a kind of a young age kind of went through the you know the British tennis kind of pathway to success and kind of did that sort of seamlessly kind of transition up into I guess kind of ITF level tournaments as you were getting older into kind of a teenager yeah I mean kind of I'd, I'd play county I played a county event under I think it was under 11 or under 12 and I lost in the quarterfinals and there was a, a really good Russian coach there who who was watching his player who actually beat me um, and he said to my parents that Marcus is very good, I'd, I'd like to coach him. And then me and Neil Porfley, his name is, um, and Victor, my coach, we spent sort of seven, eight years at Bisham Abbey together. But I had that Russian coach, he was strict but fun at the same time. So <laughs> we worked very, very hard um, and yeah, we gradually got better. Um, and then by the time I was 16, I had to play some international junior tournaments because I wanted to, you know, try and get as high as I can in the junior world rankings. And I got to number 14 in the world and number one in the UK juniors. So, um, I did pretty well, pretty well there. Um, but only gradually I went from county level to, to national top 16 in the country by the time I was 13. And then. Yeah, I played for Britain under 14, under 16, top three in the country. So, obviously, by 18, I was number one. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I can't <laughs> tell you when it sort of clicked or or when I got a lot better, but I think training 20, 25 hours a week certainly helped. Um, but, yeah, there, there was no, like, sort of defining point where I look back and go, oh, yeah, it was this year that I, I just started, <laughs> started being everyone out of nowhere. It was... Yeah, very, very gradual. You kind of talk about kind of, you know, your kind of success, I guess, at the, you know, in the ITFs and that sort of international arena at junior level, you know, reaching kind of, you know, num- number 14 in the rankings. Was it always kind of your, you know, ambition to kind of, you know, take that into kind of the senior tour and kind of, kind of see, I guess, in terms of your, like an ATP world ranking, how kind of high you can get? And, you know, what was that, I guess, what was that jump like from kind of junior to senior tennis what was the you know was it did it feel any different did you feel like you you know had to train even more or did you feel like your ability was kind of you know was going to be able to kind of take you places I mean ironically I made my first I qualified I made my first pro final when I was 17 and from there I thought I was still playing juniors I thought okay this is gonna be fine I didn't actually make a final again (laughs) until I was 20 23 years old so Hmm. it was a bit of a shock for me I think it was a learning curve. When you're a junior, you're very protected. Like we stayed in, in the Grand Hyatt on Fifth Avenue playing the US Open juniors. You've got kit sponsors. You've got bonus contracts. You don't pay a penny for anything. And then you're, you're 19, 20 years old, and you're in the middle of Romania booking your own hotel, um, getting lost on a train. So it was a big shock, actually, growing up rather than tennis ability as such. I think there's a lot a lot more players in the men's game than juniors, a lot more solid, good players. Um, so you can't really, in juniors, you can get away with a, with a, a dodgy match every now and again. 
um, because I was, you know, that much better than someone outside the top 100 as a junior. But in men's, everyone could play very, very well. So um, it took me a lot longer to get up than I'd hoped for. And, and I was aiming for a lot more than I achieved, but it could have been a lot worse as well. That's quite a good perspective. Um, yeah, I think also what you say about the junior players, it's almost like perhaps the top juniors like nowadays, should there be more education around the realities of, of the circuit? Because not all of them are going to make it. And I mean, do you think that's something that could be introduced on the tour now for juniors? Absolutely. I think the route which I got offered at the time, obviously I got every offer under the sun with my ranking was to go to American College. Um, on a a full scholarship and I think more and more players are realising that's probably the route to go Um, because A, you know, you get the worst case scenario is you get a degree out of it Um, B, you're playing tons of matches with a team environment Um, you're playing very, very good players a lot and you have time to mature Mm. in those four years you come out 22 years old and as Cam Norrie, as a number of players are doing now they're coming out uh, having improved, um, having feeling confident, match tight, um, they've got you know they've got some money behind them probably. I'm guessing because they haven't spent much in those four years. Um, and I think more and more players. I mean, even Arthur Ferry, even Norrie at the time was was number ten in the world juniors, and and he went to college. So I think mm. a lot of top juniors, unless my age there is Grigor Dimitrov, unless you're winning challenges at 16, 17, I think it's a really, really good option for players to go. But that that wasn't an option when I was sort of growing up. It was seen to be college. If you go to college, then you're going to give up. Mm. Or you're going for, you know, going to university, you're going to drink, you're going to, to whatever. That was how it was perceived. But but it very much was, wasn't that, that at all. I suppose it's good that perceptions have changed somewhat. And I think it has become, I guess, a more viable mainstream option. And the more you get kind of players coming out of that system and having more success on the tour, I guess it it boosts the credibility of it as well. And I mean, for much of your career, Marcus, um, you were kind of on, on the futures um, circuit, futures tour level. What would be, for our listeners who perhaps aren't very familiar with with the futures level events, what would be your kind of typical season on tour how many of those events would have been kind of uk based how how much of your time was spent abroad you know what was a typical kind of schedule for you well it's changed really every year there there were a couple of years where the uk hosted 25 tournaments 25 plus so we didn't have to travel that much which was really really good actually we had some you know loads of good highly ranked players between sort of two four hundred in the world um, other years when I started off, now there were five or six, so you had to travel. I am to play twenty plus tournaments. Some years I got sixteen or seventeen due to injury. Um, some years I got I got a few more, um, but typically you need to play more tournaments because the points, the ATP points on reward, are a lot lower. So you need to be, as I say, over a year you're going to play five really good tournaments, five really bad ones, and the rest average. So you need to accumulate as many points as you can. Um, when, you, when you hit the challenger in ATP, the points are, are pretty rewarding. So you'll see a lot of players in the top 100 who really have two or three very good weeks in the whole year and the rest of the time, first, second round. But, the, but that's enough. It's more rewarding. So but to get from the futures to the challengers, you need to, you need to win an awful lot of matches. Mm, that's interesting because I think what's, you know, what my kind of perception is of kind of that, that futures level is that 
it is like part of that pathway kind of upwards. And I, I was just kind of wondering if, you know, what's the sort of makeup of the, you know, that sort of, of level? Is it, you know, young and up and coming people trying to make their, you know, way up? And if, if you don't, then, you know, you have to figure out by yourself kind of what happens next. Or is there that sort of, you know, those players who, you know, they just love playing tennis and are just happy to kind of, you know, exist at this kind of level and, try and make it work as as much as possible even though you know it might not be as sustainable because you know the ranking points and probably the prize money as well is is not is not enough on its own well you're absolutely right yeah that they've got the the it's not enough on its own um that's why players do a lot of they'll, they'll go and play french and german league matches they'll they'll hunt for private sponsors they'll play money events outside in their federation to try and keep themselves financially afloat um as as the question about um, sort of ages of players, um, mostly young, but you do get some 30, 31 year olds still at it. Um, that there are, you know, there are a few players that take, take a while to, to get their breakthrough and some people die trying as such. Um, but mainly it's, it's the younger players sort of 17, 18 year olds plus um, between then and, and 24, 25, a lot of players, if they haven't made it by, 23, 24, 25, actually call it a day because, yeah, as you say, the, the, the money's not there. Um, and oh, it's, it's a tough life. You work, people work very, very hard. And actually, the level of tennis is pretty good out there. Um, so people feel like they're trying to push water up a hill as such. So, um, yeah, you tend to get a few youngsters and, and a few older guys. Obviously, there's some in between, but that they'll have some money behind them or private sponsorship or something like that. And how did you find it with, with regards to? you know making a living like did you have to to play those like french and german leagues or what other things were you were you doing to kind of make ends meet if if you like for for want of a better better phrase yeah i played french league every year for 10 years i've got a really strong bomb on my team but yeah these are the things you have to do um in may there's only five matches and you you go and get paid well and that's it, it sort of keeps you going for the rest of the year mm. There were British tours, there were prize money tournaments when I was growing up, so I'd, I'd attempt to play a few of those. I was very lucky to have a sponsor at 23 years old who came and said, I know, I'm, yeah, I believe in you, you've got potential, put some money behind me for two years, and, and that, that actually helped me jump from 1,000 in the world to 320 in, in just over a year. So it really is important to have financial backing, and, and there are... <laughs> Tons of players who are slipping under the radar that just don't have that opportunity. So, you know, I was very blessed. Like without without that, I wouldn't have been at Wimbledon. I wouldn't have had the the journey I had. So, um, it's 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 a really tough situation. And do you feel like um, you know, even you know, these players are you know quite young, and <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot of expectation, a lot of pressure. You know, as a fan, I wasn't actually aware that kind of private kind of sponsors were you know such a thing and such a young you know such a kind of a young age, but. You know, at that level, even though it's sort of, you know, it might be, you know, the crowds might be very minimal. It, it sounds like the expectation and the pressure is still, is still very real. And, you know, it is a sort of flight or fight kind of situation. It feels like. I'd say it's 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 more competitive than probably uh, high end challengers and lower end ATPs. A lot of players in the mm. top hundred, obviously, they work very hard, but they're happy to be there. Um, obviously, take the top ten aside; those guys are, are ruthless. Um, but yeah, as you say, you're fighting. You're fighting for the same thing. It's 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 a, it's a um, survival of the fittest, isn't it? So yeah, you get you see some yeah you see some um, very competitive matches. You see in qualifying, you see some cheating. You see some gamesmanship. I've seen an awful lot of stuff out there that's you know not pleasant. 
It feels like it's a world away from the cameras and it feels like it feels a little bit more like the Wild West of, you know, yeah. of, of the tennis world. But, you know, it feels like, you know, you see it on kind of social media. It feels like players can get away or they feel like anyway, they can get away, you know, arguably with a lot, a lot more than, say, on the ATP tour where, you know, there's a camera. It feels like there's, there's a camera pretty much everywhere. As a result of that, do you feel like it, it, it did feel, does it feel like the, the Wild West or, you know, when you were playing it? Kind of. Yeah, every week was different. Like when I went to play to France, when I went to play in France, they they organised it. There's two, three hundred people watching, but most of the weeks, yeah, there's a man, there's dog walking past, and the, the dog's trying to pick the tennis ball through the fence. That's the reality of it, um, and that's one of the reasons there's no money there because there's no money to give anyone. They're not selling anything. So, um, yeah, it was every every tournament, every experience. I'll, I'll look through my history of matches and I'll remember something from that tournament. There's always a, a slight difference, but um, most of the time, yeah, you're playing in front of nobody apart from other players mm. or or a few really mad tennis fans that, that are local. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure Kim would be there. Well, it's it's, lo- it's lovely to have people, you know. Yeah, it's um. I always feel a bit self conscious if it's like just me in the crowd because it's just you know. But um, I'm sure you've got many interesting stories to tell from from all the futures events. And just a word on you know, you described it almost as pushing water up a hill, like trying to, you know, kind of exist, I guess, f- on the tour. But is there any like support provided by the ITF um, in kind of terms of like your mental health, uh, not just kind of financial support, but is there anything that when you were on the tour that was kind of provided to help with, you know, your emotions whilst trying to kind of survive on the circuit? Or have you seen anything like that come in in more recent years, you know, with more, more focus on mental health? No, absolutely. I'm no. going to sound really, really, really negative here. No, be <laughs> honest. I've already compared it to pushing water up a hill, but no, there's absolutely nothing. Mm. It's doggy dog out there. You're, it's part of part of the reason that I stopped. Is it's it's so lonely out there, and if you're not making money from it, or or you're not enjoying it anymore, then it's really not worth it. If you know what I mean. So no, there's there's, there's no support. There really isn't any support. Um, and a lot a lot of players will try and travel with other players that they know just so you've got something to do someone to speak to off court which was was really good traveling with Brits really good fun yeah I was just going to mention that because I feel like you know if if you do just sort of only play singles it it could you know feel quite lonely and it, you know might feel like you're such sort of in a you know living like a cold existence and you know I was kind of looking at kind of your you know your titles and a lot of them kind of come in the the doubles arena uh you know playing with a lot of other kind of British uh you know tennis players as well players like Dan Smethurst, Lewis Burton, Josh Goodall, Johnny O'Mara, and I think Dan Evans as well at one point. Um, you know, what was the sort of attraction and appeal to you for doubles? Was it that sort of, you know, I want to enjoy being on, you know, on this tour um, and playing with my mates and maybe, you know, was doubles for you the sort of way that you could sort of live that out a bit more in a more of a, in a more kind of fun and in, in a joyful kind of environment versus kind of the singles? Oh, doubles was really good from a young age I've always been a lot better at it being a lefty liking to come to the net um, I've been a lot better and actually some weeks when you lost early in singles you get confident from winning doubles um, I think I won a nine singles titles and the rest doubles sort of 30 something doubles titles I think that's something like that but doubles yeah A, a you're playing half the field it's half the size of the draw and, and B I'm naturally better at it um, I enjoyed it I actually enjoyed the singles matches more because you're there in a fight by yourself and it's very character building. I just, um, yeah, I was just better at doubles. I found it a lot easier. It, ma- it helped my game out a lot more. See, I'm 6'3". I'm a, I'm a big built guy. Um, 
not shy around the net. So it, yeah, it just, yeah, it just suited suited me more. But but actually, yeah, I had a choice to play doubles for the rest of my life, and you know, at the lower rings of tennis, there's, there's absolutely no money in it, and and they've basically half the points for for winning now. So to actually make a living out of it, you've got to be top twenty, top thirty in the world to make a a, a good living. Um, and obviously, you know the sacrifices it takes. So yeah, no, but but I actually enjoyed singles more. But I just wasn't as good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably um, quite true for a lot of players. You know, we um, we spoke, we speak a fair fair bit about doubles on the podcast, and we had um, uh, one of our one of the top you know female doubles players on on last year, and yeah, she had quite a good insight as well and into like why you know she chose to, to specialize on doubles. But like you said, it's it's only when you get to the top echelon, I suppose, that it it, it can make you know ends meet as well. And- I mean, let's kind of move on to to your epic kind of, uh, I guess, fairy tale. You know, if we want to sort of throw all the superlatives out there, Marcus, about Wimbledon 2016. So a lot of our listeners will remember your run to the second round playing Roger Federer on centre court. But it actually began uh, quite a way before before the main championships. I believe you were in the pre-qualifying event. Um, is that correct? And, and you weren't actually even supposed to be in that. Is, is that right? Yeah, I signed in, um, and the, the cut was going to look really strong. And I thought I'd be comfortably in. I was ranked seven seven two at the time, and normally the cut's around a thousand. But every man and his dog came back for it this year, um, and I wouldn't have got in had Scott Clayton's flight not got cancelled from Turkey. <laughs> oh wow! He was at the end of a singles career and um, sort of turning up just to have a swing, and he, his flight got cancelled, and he thought, you know, I'm, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, but I was I was actually the last person into that to that match, and I hadn't hit a ball on grass. I was playing German league matches and doing some some uh, mini red coaching at my local club. Um, obviously, staying fit and hitting balls, but no real preparation for Wimbledon. I mean, what was your what, like? Where what was literally your ambition? Kind of going into that pre qualifier, you know, you just made the cut. You know, was it kind of just? you know, taking it one match at a time, just seeing it where, where it got to. It sounds like your yeah, expectations were at a minimum, you know, a very minimum. And yeah, did that, I guess, did that take the pressure off things? Not really. No, I, I pre-qualified twice before. I played Wimbledon Qualies three times before. Like, so I, 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 I believed, I didn't think there was anyone there I couldn't beat. Um, I was just, yeah, happy to get in. And, and yeah, I always take it a match at a time. Uh, but I beat yeah I beat Bambridge, O'Mara, and Joe Salisbury to pre-qualify. So so not the nicest draw on a grass court. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, I, I didn't lose a set. I played. I continued playing pretty well. Uh, I was really happy to be in Wimbledon qualies, but I wasn't. No, I wasn't surprised. I'd beaten them all before. So yeah, it wasn't like a huge shock um, to to anyone because I hadn't. Yeah, I, I, people knew I was still playing and, and playing well. It's just I wasn't around mm. the tour all the time. That's that's all. Yeah, of course. And I see moving on to the actual qualifying draw. Um, I don't think people maybe realise this, and I suppose it has only become significant of late. But you actually beat Andre Rublev and Daniel Medvedev, I believe, in that in that qualifying. I mean, what was that like? <laughs> I played Sugita first round, who'd, who'd qualified the last three years in a row. Uh, just a nightmare of a draw all round. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got through him. Rublev, I knew was was a very promising youngster, but again, he was very young and quite tacti- tactically naive at the time and, and didn't really like coming to the net. So 
I think I beat him in straight uh, three and four or four and five, something like that. But but that was actually at the time I thought, yeah, this is comfortable. I've, yeah, I'd, I've got experience. I'm a good grass player. Um, he hated every minute of it. He was going nuts. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like the Rublev I, I grew up with because, yeah, I've, I've seen him play... You know, when he was a bit more naive, I think you know, a few you know, like a few years ago at the US Open, and yeah, he did have a bit of a temper on him, and um, he definitely, I think, has kind of matured over the seasons. But um, yeah, he was definitely a very fiery character. I think probably around that that time you played him. Well, yeah. Also, I've got I've got good hands. I brought him into the net. I, I took him at the, at the first few games. He was hitting the ball so hard, and I said to my friend at the side, "Well, I'm not going to play like this for, for long." Um, I'm not going to enjoy enjoy trying to go toe to toe from the back, so I just yeah used my hands a lot, so volleyed quite a bit, um, and just really gave him some really awkward stuff to deal with, and and yeah, he played into my hands a little bit, um, and then I was last round qualies playing Medvedev, who, who again I did some research on him, I'd sort seen it being defaulted a couple of times, a bit bit of a live wire, and again young, so. Yeah, in my head, I, I thought it would suck to lose last round qualies. But I was also, you know, taking it a match at a time and in last round qualies of a slam. And yeah, I, I beat him in four sets. I went 5-1 down straight away and, and his tennis was incredible. And I, I thought, right, this is it now for me. And I managed to hang back in the in the first set and get him to break point to, to be back on serve at 5-4. end up losing the set. But in my head, I thought, right, I'm in this match now. Um, and when I won the second set, as, as I broke him, he went completely ballistic, and that's when I really started believing. And then by the end, I think I was six, three, five, two serving in the fourth, um, and I choked a bit serving for a slam. I played an awful game, and then I, I held to love at five four. But from the stage of being one five down, that feeling to then being five two up felt like a, a completely different match. Completely different match. Talking about kind of Rublev and, and Medvedev when you were playing them then. Did you think, you know, obviously they were kind of up and coming, up and coming players. Did you think that they were going to be future top tenors in in on the ATP tour when you were when you were playing them, or did you think that that wasn't going to be achievable based on on what they would what they had shown you on the tennis court? No, I knew I knew that I knew how well I was playing, um, and I knew how good they were, and and how young they are. They still got you know a lot to learn. And, but no, I wasn't surprised at all. The 12 months after, all three of the guys I played in qualities were top 50 in the world, and I, I wasn't surprised at all. Like I, I was fully aware of how well I was playing and how good they were. Um, but when you're playing that way, you, you sort of just ride the wave and, and manage it. It's, it's, it's a nice problem to have. Yeah, just got to focus on the match at the time, haven't you? And I mean, moving into the, the main draw, you had Barankis first round, but just looking at the draw, obviously, did you sort of see, oh, it could be Federer round two if I can get through this match? Like, was that, you know, added pressure or were you just, did that kind of propel you forward? Because, you know, you beat Barankis and obviously first ever victory, you know, at Grand Slam, first time playing a, you know, senior Grand Slam. But how did that kind of affect you when you sort of looking ahead in, in the draw? Uh, I, I saw the draw at the beginning, but to be honest, it was such a whirlwind. Um, the media started kicking off a bit. Um, so I was just enjoying it. I went to practice. I ate in the restaurant. I mean, I, I was just really quite in a simple headspace. So I'd, I'd seen the draw. Um, <laughs> no, it, was, it didn't inspire me to win. No, I, I'd, last time I played Barankas, I lost 6-2, 6 love when I was under 14. He was number one in the world for my age. Incredibly good player. So I believed I could win, but but really, no, I wasn't. I wasn't uh, winning j- just, you know, the chance to play Federer. It was only after the match on court 17 when I was walking off and I looked up and I scored, saw the scoreboard 
with Federer's name on it, did I then remember, oh, crap, um, <laughs> I could have an issue here. What was it kind of like just in that kind of that Barankis match? I mean, you know, you've, you've spoken about how much you enjoy kind of playing, you know, with fans, you know, <laughs> going from, you know, the futures level where it, it can literally be kind of man and their dog all the way to kind of, you know, Wimbledon at the championships, lots of British tennis fans all kind of around you kind of cheering and, and you know, cheer, cheering you on. What's that? What was that? What was that feeling like to really have kind of the, you know, the British crowd with you, you know, in such a, you know, probably in such a, in a massive capacity? Oh, it's the best day of my career. And I was so shocked. As soon as I walked out on court, it was just, oh, people were looking over from the balcony from court 16. Like, the atmosphere was, I can't, yeah, I was so shocked at how supportive and how loud it was. And then it completely relaxed me. I was like, right, we're going to have a party today. Um, and, and I looked over at Barankis <laughs> and he was, he was doing breathing techniques in the corner. And my coach sort of, said to me, like, go get him now. And, I, yeah, I broke first game. And, and I mean, it was quite a com- – I had some break point issues, but it was quite a comfy win, 3-3 three, three and 4. Um, I played well, don't get me wrong. I don't think Barankis had his best day, but when you got that support behind you, yeah, I, I thrive. I always play better in team events. Than when there's people there, I pick my game up. Um, it's something I've always, always enjoyed doing and something I've found tough to emulate when you're by yourself. Um, but yeah, what a fantastic day that was. Yeah, that's interesting. You talk about like the impact of a crowd because you know at the moment, you know, with the the tour going on and and events having either partial crowds or or no crowds, and I think we're seeing it have kind of an effect on on players. Um, you know, and, and particularly how they approach the game and the you know the energy they can bring to the court because you know there are some players out there who kind of feed off off the crowd and. It, it sounds like you're. It sounds like you're one of those players, and I was just wondering, kind of, if if you were kind of playing today in terms of the, you know, no crowd, and you know, for players who feed off the energy, is that has that become more of a challenge now? Do you think in terms of, you know, the the impact of, you know, what the you know the pandemic has had on tennis? Yeah, yeah, I think I'm probably in quite a quite the majority that that play prefer playing in front of crowds. Um, mm. And but the, when you're when you're at these tournaments, you don't have the option. So you, you do get on with it. And I've played some cracking matches with, with no people there, and I've played some terrible matches with loads of people there before. So it, it's not the be all and end all. It's just something I enjoy more. And, and actually, when I was riding that wave, playing that amazing tennis, and and it's a sunny day, and you've got the crowd behind you, and your opponent's nervous, then I mean everything just stars aligned, didn't they? I mean, mm. call it luck, call it fate, whatever you want, but but everything just fell into place that that day um and and i i took every single chance i had um but yeah no i mean there, there are there are some characters you raffers raffer would have the same work rate if no one was there at all but but these guys are so rare so so rare um and you and you see you see players without crowds at a slam you see some play, players really struggle right um more than normal yeah for sure it's um it can completely change even just you know if there is a few people there you know it can affect how how into the the match the the few you know the few crowd members there are you know are but um i mean going on to that second round with federer obviously the media would have been massively hyping it up like you were saying i suppose your requests to do interviews must have kind of gone through the roof in in like the day before <laughs> how did you find you know juggling all that because you know normally you wouldn't be dealing with so many you know, requests and having to do interviews, like, did you find that enjoyable? Was it kind of putting you off a bit or was you just kind of, again, just soaking it up as part of the whole experience? 
Exactly that. I was I was soaking everything up, and luckily I had a, I had an agent during that time, an old friend of mine who was actually Nick Kyrgios's agent at the time. Managed all my stuff as as soon as I qualified. I had that help, so that was a huge. I got some really really invaluable advice there about sort of saying no to to certain broadcasters about interviews because I'd have been there for five hours had I said yes to everything. Um, and my media was still was still big, but it was it was positive stuff, and I was willing to do it. Um, I was running on pure adrenaline. Like as soon as I lost to Federer the next morning, I think we went on. Phil and Holly Willoughby's thing on on the TV, but but after that, I mean, I I, I was absolutely exhausted for for two weeks. Mm. So I think I <laughs> think surprised. I was riding, riding on that cloud and riding on adrenaline completely. Just on that on that match with Federer, I mean, stepping out to centre court, kind of the stuff of dreams, isn't it? I suppose for for a British player, you know, home slam on grass against you know the best grass courser of all time arguably. I mean, you lost that first set to love. So were you kind of thinking at the end of that set, oh, this is not going at all well? Um, or were you kind of just like, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'm just going to go for it. You know, how how were you feeling, especially like as, as the match started off? There was concern because I won 21 or 22 points in that first set. I had game points every one of my service games and I had a break point on his, maybe two. Um, I just wasn't playing the big points on on the on the on my deci- on my deciding points. I was a you're playing Roger Federer, and B when I had a chance, I was going for a, you know too much. Mm. Um, so I was concerned. Actually, I'm playing pretty well, and I'm six love down. But actually, as soon as I got that first game, I, I simplified things a bit. I stopped going <laughs> for silly shots on big points, and and in the end, I had opportunities in the third to to break and, and actually step ahead. But yeah, it wasn't to be. But yeah, no, I, the, you don't have long to react when you're out there on court. Um, my my shoulder was stiffening up. I got the trainer on six love, and yeah, I had a bit more thinking time there. But that's not always good to have more <laughs> thinking time. Uh, I'll tell you that. What was your game plan, kind of going into the match? I mean, obviously, you probably had never played someone like you know Roger Federer before, greatest of not all time. Quite, no. Um, <laughs> um what were your you know what was what were kind of your tactics what was going through your head in terms of you know how to make it life difficult for him I mean you know we have seen him I think you know there have, there have been a few rare times where he has been kind of troubled I think in early rounds I'm, I'm obviously instantly thinking about to that that, Fal- that Alejandro Fowler match yeah um, twice twice you took him to five actually so I mean like did you were you kind of looking back at those situations and and trying to kind of seek inspiration from there were you um yeah what were you kind of what was kind of going through your head in terms of like how how you were going to make it you know life difficult for him um well in his first round against Pelle he looked to be struggling with his lower back especially on the low back end so me and my coach had a plan obviously to to hit that hard um I think he had an injection the day before and he yeah he he matched everything I threw at him at the start but it was it was actually to, to, to target his backhand, keep him pegged into that corner and, and just vary my serve and volleying and, and really give him no no rhythm as much as possible. Um, I don't think, yeah, I think I, I think the game plan was good. I just think he's better than me. It's as simple as that. On the day, I'd have needed to play a 10. He'd have needed to play a, a 3 or 4. Um, and it would have happened. Look, it, it does happen sometimes. But tactically, I was happy. You know, you, you don't go as 4 and you... He got his backhand, and this is before he did all that work on his backhand, before he played, uh, I don't know if you remember the 2017 Aussie Open final against Rafa. Um, don't think you can forget it, but his backhand had significantly improved then. Uh, I was lucky enough to play him before that. <laughs> uh, so I got quite, I got most of my, most of, most of my um, 
reward came from his backhand side. He'd, he'd miss a few backhands or, you know, I'd come into his backhand. Not quite as strong on the pass back then. Um, probably even now, to be honest. Um, but again, like you, you, you do, you keep playing the same shot to his backhand. He starts running around it and, and you're toast. So you do have to keep him honest. You do have to, to mix him up and, and take risks. That, yeah, that was my, that was my tactic. Yeah, you talk about kind of mixing it up. And uh, I think, you know, for a lot of fans, you know, the, the moment everyone kind of remembers was that that point that you lobbed, you brought <laughs> him into the net and then you lobbed him and, you know, the crowd went absolutely ecstatic. I think it was voted kind of shot of the tournament. Can you can you kind of talk us through that that point? Because it was, you know, I was kind of watching it last week and it was just so it was so perfectly worked. And I thought, you know, he must be he must be pretty happy with himself, you know, having kind of lobbed, um, you know, lobbed Federer on centre court. Um yeah, what was? How could you describe that feeling for us? I well, I just went two love down. I lost my serve from having game points. So I, was, I think it was like thirty all when that happened. So I was right in the middle of focusing. Um, a lot of my friends will say like it's how I play. I'm very handsy. So to most to most people, it looked like I was you know playing around, sort of drop shot lob, um, keeping keeping him on his toes. But but actually, it's the way I like to naturally play and and. I knew I wasn't gonna gonna beat Roger uh, just trading with him and playing playing big man tennis. I was gonna have to really be be smart and and yeah, that's what I did. I mixed him up that point. He 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 didn't really have a read on what I was doing that early in the match, so um, I fell over just before I hit the lob as well. I was really struggling with my footing out on centre because um, yeah, the roof they closed the roof. It was a, I found it a bit damp out there at the start. I, I fell over about three times in the first set. <laughs> Um, I think that's playing Federer as well. He makes you feel like you're rubbish. So, um, oh. but, but but no, yeah, great point. It got a shot at the tournament. Um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 how I play tennis. Actually, like lobs, passes, drop shots. It's don't don't tell everyone though. <laughs> I always feel like lobs are like a staple of, of British tennis. I always remember like that lob. I remember the Andy Murray lob to win the the, you know, the Davis Cup finals. Um, yeah, it seems to be such a it such seems to be such a uh, you know fan favorite. I think amongst British fans, and uh, yeah, I just it was just such a you know, it was just a well constructed point, and um, you know to see it happen, it was just so um, you know it was very obviously very very pleasing to see. So was I. Just kind of talking about kind of as the match kind of went on and, you know, it, it was, you know, let's say kind of writing kind of was on the wall and, you know, you, you were kind of staring kind of at defeat. And, you know, when you're kind of coming to the net and, you know, going for your handshake with, with Federer, did you have any kind of moments with him? Did you have any words for you? Because um, he was quite quick, I think, to get off the court and let you kind of have your, your moment. You, what Did you have any sort of shared conversations? Oh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a gentleman and I've seen him the last couple of years and we shared that moment. He always comes and asks how I am. Hey, Marcus, how are you doing? Um, <laughs> Do you always ask yeah. about that lob? No, no, he's, funnily enough, he doesn't. <laughs> um, but no, he, he's yeah, super, super lovely guy. Um, obviously, let me have my moment. Yeah, when, I, when I shook hands, I was, I was 30 all on his serve. I just got broken up for all. It was right, you know, it could felt like it could, could have gone either way. So I was disappointed, but... He he made the experience um, so so nice for me, um, and really didn't have to do that. And I mean, it was a remarkable, you know, tournament. The whole run through, you know, for you. And um, apart from kind of going on Holly and Phil, you know, meeting all them uh, the next day and doing all your, all your media, what was kind of the, I guess, the take home from Wimbledon twenty sixteen? Did it give you the belief that actually, you know, you you 
you can compete with the best on tour, that you do kind of deserve to be playing, you know, um, challenger and, and ATP events? Or were you kind of, I guess, thinking a bit more pessimistically or perhaps realistically that, okay, this is great. I've had a great fortnight, got, you know, a load more prize money and, you know, points, but it's probably going to go back to, to what I was doing before. You know, what was your perspective afterwards? Um, to be honest, like, it took me two weeks to really work everything out. Um, I'd, I'd, I got myself to a good challenger ranking. I played plenty of challengers a few years before and actually played ATP qualities in Marseille. Um, so I'd, I'd had a taste for it. I was starting to make money out of the game. Um, yeah, I thought I thought I could push on maybe. I, I don't know if my heart was completely in it if I look back, but I went and played a tournament out in Q8. I won it without dropping a set. Um, played an ATP event, lost in three sets from a breakup. Um, so my level was certainly there. Hmm. So some, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I really, really wanted it. I didn't go and, you know, train at a, a top academy. I sort of stayed at home and yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd had enough looking back. Um, and yeah, I don't think, yeah, that's how I felt. Um, I gave it a go for a bit and. Yeah, it's it's quite. It's, it, it, I was sort of torn in my head because you think it's never going to get better than that. <laughs> it's quite a mm-hmm. negative thing to yeah. think, but but of course I thought it. And what am I playing tennis for? I was I was the only the only reason I would I'd have been absolutely gutted if I retired was because I didn't make men's Wimbledon and I was so close twice, really really close, and I really wanted that day out just to say I played at Wimbledon. It, it's honestly so amazing. So I think I was I was happy with that. Um, yeah, I didn't really get going too much after that. And I had belief, I had the level, I had some good matches, but you need a lot more than that on the tour. You need to you need to be going at it 30 weeks a year and, and training full-time at an academy. So I don't think I wanted to do that. It's interesting you talk about that because, you know, in our most recent kind of podcast, we spoke about, you know, Dominic Team won the US Open, you know, big first time Grand Slam last season. He feels like he's on a bit of a, a come down at the moment. And it's interesting that it's like, you know, for, for a lot of players, you know, it's like, you know, they've realized their dream and realized their ambition. And, you know, once they've done that and, you know, they then look forward, um, they, they start to add a sort of new kind of perspective. And it's interesting that some players, I, I think, kind of are, you know, ready to kind of reach, you know, new heights and, and want to achieve that. But there are, you know, there are other players where they're almost kind of like, actually, you know, it's more, um, you know, there's a, there's a different perspective going there. And, um, you know, it's interesting to you to hear from, to hear from you about the fact that, um, you know, you, you didn't, you said you, you didn't feel like your heart was, was quite in it, even though you felt like you had the, the ability and was, and was that kind of, where was that kind of coming from? Was that just kind of, you know, the, the idea of like the tour and, and not wanting to go jet set around the world and what, where was, where, where was that really kind of coming from? I don't know. I, I, I look back and, and think about my actions, not not how I felt. Um, I didn't really, really push on and play a ton loads of tournaments. I had a couple of injuries, actually, that probably threw me back a bit. I think every player has like a lull in their career, but for Dominic Teams, lollies is probably a lot better than mine. My, my lull is, actually. <laughs> no, I made, I made 50 grand. That goes very quickly. Dominic Teams lull is... Oh, I'm, I'm struggling with motivation a little bit, but I'm still a multi-millionaire. <laughs> uh, he'll get him back again. It's just a dip in his career, and, and all the top guys have had it. Um, when you have it, when you're a lot lower ranked, and sometimes it puts you out, I guess. Um, and, and that's life. I've got no regrets at all, really, with it. Um, I don't look back and, and think, oh, I wish I went and did that, because I didn't want to. 
for whatever reason that is, I, I clearly didn't. So um, I think I just had enough. I think I had enough of, of being away all the time, scraping the barrel. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I, I did. There were times where I was really motivated, but it wasn't consistent. So that sounds like me in my in my day job, Marcus. I have days yeah. where I just can't be bothered. So I completely understand where you're coming from. Um, yeah. I think it's a perfectly natural you know ebb and flow of human emotion as well and I think we're all kind of a similar age actually and I think I mean for me obviously I haven't been traveling around the world for my career but as you get older you just kind of want almost to be a bit more settled sometimes as well and you just change don't you what you kind of value more and exactly just a bit of normality I had such a crazy life Mm. Um, and and of course you feel guilty like you, some people came to me oh Mark, if I had your talent I'll be doing this and like, come on man get you know get fired up but you can't actually force that on someone unless you're around at 24 seven and, and you want it. Um, it. It doesn't really help. It doesn't really no. help because yeah, you, you, no one's in anyone else's shoes, are they? So it's, it's yeah, one of those annoying exactly. things um, that, as you say, like every few years people change, don't they change what they want? They, they I've been doing it since I was 16. So um, sort of ready to move on now. I still love playing tennis, don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. But yeah. I'm an adult now, I need to make money. And, and it's just to, to be where really where I want to be is, is top top 10 in the world doubles. And, and realistically, that would take at best two, three years, and that's losing 40 grand a year. And I'm just not willing to do that, really. It's one of those one of those things. And we're talking best case scenario. You did have a, a pretty epic doubles win, I think Wimbledon twenty seventeen the next year because you um you played the doubles with with Jay Clark that year and you beat Mahu and um Uge Bear in the yeah. uh, second round I think in five sets and they, I think what they were the defending champions at the time I believe that's probably the second best day of my career Mid, yeah. middle, middle Saturday court three uh, everyone had been drinking all day and it was like a Davis Cup atmosphere um, again yeah I could speak forever about that match it was it, it was we should never have really been in with a chance considering how experienced they were. And it was me and Jay's second tournament together. So um, we were two sets to love down in our first round on an outside court, pulled through that. And then, yeah, they, they were six, three up against us. And I think it was uh, Herbert played one of the worst service games I've ever seen and followed by Mahu. And they both hit two double faults each and dumped a volley. And we're five, one up in the second thinking, hold on a minute. They've just basically donated us a set. And then from set three, we just played 10 out of 10, both of us, and, and beat them <laughs> and fairly beat them. Uh, nearly beat them at four as well. We had love 40 at 5-4 in the fourth, three match points. So, I mean, yeah, we we were, we were we played incredibly well. And then they got pretty nervous. And again, the atmosphere was just electric. I mean, I can't believe my luck two years in a row to have that sort of, that sort of atmosphere. So I just lost last round in qualities as well. So I was a bit down. Uh, because I, ne- I nearly qualified two years in a row. That would have been really good. I mean, the atmosphere on court three, middle of Saturday versus kind of centre court must have been completely different. A lot more party atmosphere, pims in the air, strawberries and cream. It, was it a bit more, did you feel it? Was it a bit more kind of raucous, kind of outside? Yeah, it was like, it was like court 17. It was like court 17. You know, when I played Barankas, it was that. On centre, everyone's much more well-behaved, aren't they? And respectful, but mm. no, not on the outside courts. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, look, very good experiences, both of them. But it's better when you win, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, at least, I mean, I know you said um, 
you um, fell in the final round of qualifying for the singles. Were you was part of you hoping you might have got a wild card into the into the main draw after your kind of exploits of the previous year, or were you not getting your hopes up too high for that? Oh yeah, of course I was hoping for one. I was, I was gutted when I didn't get one, but also grateful to be in qualies. No one has to give you anything today. Um, I'd, I'd had a, I'd had a, a bit of a dodgy shoulder, and, and probably what I should have done was was rest right up until the grass. Um, I'd played, um, I beat Dennis Kudler, lost to Alex Dimonor in three sets in Surbiton. So I was playing really good tennis. Um, yeah, it just didn't quite happen. I went to I went to a, a Futures in Spain, lost first round on the clay. I, I probably shouldn't have played that tournament in hindsight because you have other players, James Ward, who just didn't play at all and, and played Wimbledon and got his wild card. So maybe that would have been a smarter way of going at it. But um no, again, I don't really regret anything. I was, I was naturally disappointed because I thought I had a chance, but in the same way, grateful for the qualies one. And, and I was one match away from doing it again. I think it would have been sweeter had I qualified again to then say, actually, you know, I deserve to be here, which which I probably made up for in the doubles. So, um, yeah, no, I was happy. And then the following year, I, I'm pre-qualies and I'm playing Dan Evans second round. So that, that wasn't great. I lost 7-6, seven, 7-6. Six, seven, six. It sounds like you've played, obviously, a lot of, players who have gone on to kind of bigger and better things you know over the seasons I mean as kind of your kind of career kind of I guess progressed and you're kind of you know getting towards you know a point where you know I guess you were kind of realizing actually I need to kind of move on kind of with my life was there a you know was there a kind of a flash moment when that happened or you know was it sort of something that was kind of building up over you know a period of time and you know i think particularly with the you know the pandemic hitting last season you know there was all that kind of reset business with the you know the tour did that give you a different perspective what was kind of your kind of thoughts in terms of you know realizing that there's going to be life after tennis and that was approaching for you oh uh, yeah certainly the pandemic didn't help um i think i didn't want to feel the way i did and if I think, you know, if there was money in it, I'd, I'd continue doing it because I do love playing matches. But it's just very unrewarding. And, and I was out in Greece. I played four weeks out there. And I think I picked up like 50 euros prize money. Didn't get into two of the tournaments. Um, and I just thought, like, I, I can't keep doing this. This is just this is just rubbish. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I don't see it changing. They've, they've Yeah, it's very difficult with the, with the situation with, with COVID, with the amount of tournaments going on. Um and yeah, it's yeah, it's just something that that yeah, the situation sucks. Unfortunately, I have to quit, and um, I can try and help other people in their game now. I'd like to be a, be a top coach and and help others. That that I'll I'll get something out of that, and that's where my life's at. Yeah, we were we've um, had a lot of our listeners asking, you know, what what is your next um, what is your next stage? You know, we had. Um, Robbie Lung asking us on Twitter, are you going to attempt to become a coach for, well, for a player on the ATP or WTA or are you going to be doing like coaching qualifications or it sounds like you've already done a bit of coaching previously. Is, is that correct? Yeah, I've done bits and bobs um, here and there. I'm, do, I'm going to start my qualifications soon just so that, you know, if I don't have the, the dream job, then I've got something to fall back on tennis-wise. Um I don't think I want to be coaching 60 hours a week on my feet until I'm 50 years old. No, I'd, I'd love to work with a top player and, and help young players achieve their dreams um, on and off the court. I think a coach is, isn't more than just tennis. I think you can really help people more, more than that. Um, yeah, so for now, it's just get through my qualifications um, and see what you know options open up. I'm going to be very proactive in 
and where I'm going. Um, I've, 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 that's that's my short term plan, and long term, who knows? I, I don't really make too many long term plans because they never seem to go to plan anyway. So <laughs> yeah, it's a wise move. <laughs> I was just going to add, you know, talking about kind of your, you know, career and the fact that you've come up, you know, you've gone, it sounds like you've gone through the, like almost the whole system really talking about kind of under 12s, under 14s, et cetera. So it certainly feels like you can, as a coach, I guess, add value more, you know, I guess to the, particularly to that junior kind of side of the game where you, you know what it's like to kind of go from that sort of protected environment, um, to, you know, being out on your road and having to book kind of, uh, you know, hotels and accommodation kind of for yourself. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I think with coaching, there's a lot of different ways, I guess you can, can play it. And I guess we don't see all of them, you know, as a, as a fan, but, um, yeah, it feels like obviously junior tennis is something that, um, it could be, it could be a, a, you know, a opportunity, particularly with kind of British tennis to, to get involved in. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got, as you say, I've, 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 I'm very experienced in, in, yeah, futures challenges, junior game. Um, I can give a lot of good advice for things that went well for me, and I can also look back at, at the things I could have done better and, and help people that way. You know, you can help people on, on so many different things through your successes and your failures, and I think it's important to, to realise what they are and and you know learn your player, learn learn what's going to get them ticking, learn how to to get the best out of them um, and help. And I think I could help yeah, a lot of players, certainly from, you know, the 14 plus age with, with junior tennis. And I've got a lot to learn with, with getting kids into tennis with beginner coaching, but I'm sure I'm going to learn it all. Um, and I'm excited. Oh, that's great. And another chapter of your, of your life in tennis. And I mean, obviously you've, you've spoken quite a bit about your experiences and things that you would perhaps want to change on the tour but is there like one thing that if you could that you would introduce onto the tour maybe within British tennis as a setup you know for young players one thing that maybe you wish that the wish that you'd been able to you know make use of or had been around when when you were kind of starting out in your career well I think what 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 I have when things are going well things are things that people are very much willing to help you it's when when you're not doing so well I think you know you're very young growing up uh, as, a, as a kid. I was nine, 19, 20 when I lost my funding and I was sort of left alone. And I think tons of players would, would say the same. I think you, you need actually a, a, like a, hu- a human connection with someone. You need more than a coach. You need someone to sort of check in with you, how you're doing, what are your next plans, sort of, sort, of, sort of life assistance as such. And you might not want to play tennis, but you need, I think they've got a system now where you know, they help you with different qualifications. They look at your strengths, but that's only come in really recently. And I think, yeah, you, you just need to have people looking out for the for the individual player um, rather than just you're in, you're out, you've won, you've lost. Um, like sort of a conveyor belt it is at the moment. Um, but I think they're addressing that. I think they announced yesterday they're giving the under-18 winner of Nationals a Wimbledon Qualies wildcard. I think that's big, that should have happened a long time ago, but it's happening now. I think we're taking big strides forward and I'm going to try and get in there and, and, and help as many people and players as I can. That's fantastic. And I believe, Marcus, that you have set up a, a podcast. Is that correct? You're, you're getting into the podcasting game as well. And is that is that connected with your kind of decision to, you know, try and, you know, help others with their their journey in tennis is you know what what's the aim of, of the podcast? What's the what's the remit that you've kind of created for it? 
Well, me and Dave, I met Dave when I was training at Surbiton. He used to work at TalkSport. He's a fantastic tennis coach. He's got his own setup at Red Hill. It's something we decided at the start of the first lockdown, let's just talk about tennis. And it's something that's actually kicked off quite a lot. We've had quite a few guests and we've got, you know, a, a big amount of listeners now. And it's something that, yeah, we'll, we'll do for the future and, and see where it takes us. We enjoy talking about tennis. We enjoy seeing, you know, different people's views on stuff, even how, no matter how extreme they are, no matter how right or wrong people think they are. It's good to hear different perspectives of stuff. Um, yeah, it started off as just a chat and, and now it's, yeah, we've got, yeah, it's, it's, it's got quite a, a decent enough backing and we're getting some nice emails from people who are, who are really enjoying it. It's, yeah, most of it's tennis. Some of it's, you know, general chat, like what crisps do we like? And it's just, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's sort of, yeah, sometimes we just have a waffle pod, we call it. We just talk, obviously, tennis-based, but... Yeah, I mean, you, now you've mentioned Chris, I've got to ask, are you salt and vinegar or cheese and onion? Or cheese perhaps and onion. Not, neither of the two. Oh, no. Ooh, okay, well, I have to disagree. Sure oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or re- ready salted only, only when you're abroad. I've never eaten them in England. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. For some, reason, quite... <laughs> for, for some reason on holiday, they taste nicer. I don't know if people agree with me, but... Maybe it's just because you need the salt because you're Maybe. sort of, you know, somewhere hotter. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm not uh, struggling the... for, for salt in England, tell you that. No. <laughs> what's the name of the podcast for if our listeners want to it's called, start listening? Uh, what are you talking about, Willis? Okay. And is that on kind of most? It's on Spotify, iTunes and Google. Fantastic. Well, we'll put a link to that in, in the show notes um, for this awesome. episode so our listeners can can have a listen as well. And uh, we actually talking of our listeners, we've got a couple of listener questions, um, if that's okay. So um, you sort of have, I guess, kind of covered this, but we've got a question from Lynn Pin, uh, one of our regular listeners. She said, did you enjoy all the fame? Uh, did you miss the attention when you got back to regular tour life or was it a relief? Um, and then she's put, P.S. He'll always be famous in my eyes. Love that Wimbledon so much. Thanks to him. Shoes off for Willis. Uh, no, I, 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 it was good. It was all positive story, but it's a, it's a path I didn't want to choose. I got offered sort of quarter of a million pounds to go on Celebrity Big Brother and, and I turned it down straight away. I, I really don't like mm. all the attention all the time i'm quite a, quite a boring person actually uh behind closed doors um <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I enjoy i very much enjoyed the run i enjoyed all the support all the positivity but yeah no i quite like my normal life as well and we also had a listener question from tom bryant to ask very plain and simple who is the funniest person on tour Nick Nick Kyrgios, not even a question. Easily, <laughs> I love him to bits. I mean, I think he's great for tennis. I don't think he's very uh, smart with some of his decisions sometimes, but I think it's really refreshing. And and I think what he's done for tennis, I think a lot a lot a lot of young kids look up to him and, and probably play because mm. of him. So um, behind closed doors, lovely guy as well. Yeah, and he does a lot for charity as well, which I think yeah. a lot of people forget. So, yeah, he's, yeah human. he's a human being. He doesn't really have a filter, and it's really, I, I really, every time he plays, I watch. So, and I, I like Goran growing up. Like, I like, I like Maverick. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> are you a fan of the underarm serve? Then I would assume, uh, assume you're a fan or not. Yeah, it's, uh, it's in the rules, but I think if you if you do it too often, people are just gonna come and whip it down your throat, aren't they? So, I mm. think it's it's okay to do once or twice, but I don't think it's something that we'll see regularly used in a match um you might be able to catch one pl- one one point out uh but you don't want to pee off the wrong person as well we saw how rafa thought about it and and i think rafa then upped mm. his intensity a bit more so you've got to be careful mm. what you yeah. do it to 
<laughs> yeah, it can have an adverse effect. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, I would have wanted wine wrapper up. Yeah. Um, so, Marcus, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Um, you mentioned uh, what crisps you like, but we do actually have one more kind of food and drink related question, which we always ask our guests, um, as we are quite a British podcast. We both love our, our tea uh, on the passing shot. So uh, we have a passing shot brew board. We'd like to add your name to it, but we need to ask you a very important question. And that is, how do you take your tea or if you are a tea drinker at all, like, do you have a favourite type of tea? How do you oh, take it? I mean, yeah. Um, I've been doing some work on a building site with my cousin recently and, and people bring teas out. So I just have it. A white, uh, <laughs> builder's white, tea. Just builder's tea, no sugar. Um, and at night time I have a peppermint tea or a three mint tea. Or I've tried all the, all the, uh, all the posh little teas as well that I quite like. Um, but yeah, I'm more of a coffee man. I'm a, I'm an oat milk flat white man myself. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that works. But, oat milk flat white. Yeah. But if I'm having tea, it's uh, it's a little bit of milk, no sugar. Lovely, lovely stuff. You can't you what can't be you? um builders tea. Um, yeah, I like a bit of Yorkshire tea. Um, yeah, it's good. Yeah, that. I don't take I don't take milk anymore. I have to say, but oh, really? I just like a box bog standard uh black tea bog standard tea yeah i i was a bit dairy intolerant so i stopped having okay. it and then i just never went back to it because i just thought actually it's fine on its own it, yeah, so i'm quite european does, now <laughs> i'm very much on the builders builders tea no sugar that is definitely right up oh, uh, my yeah. street so um can't can't beat it uh but yeah me and kim have big arguments quite often i feel they don't normally make onto the podcast but yeah we we always have a massive <laughs> idea, tea it's conversation exactly um but honestly marcus it's been absolutely fantastic you um giving your time to us and coming onto the show and kind of talking about your kind of career in tennis um it's been really insightful really fascinating you know talking about your like, kind of your you know your uh, junior career and kind of your stories at wimbledon really kind of fantastic insight as well as kind of your plans for the future just very quickly for our listeners who want to get a bit more of marcus willis are you on kind of social media are you on kind of instagram or twitter can you let us know where your uh listeners uh our listeners even can can find you it's uh will bomb 90 w-i-l-l-b-o-m-b nine zero uh it's a nickname i got when i was younger because i used to have a good serve. <laughs> so people people <laughs> say if you've got a big serve you got a bomb so people just said will bomb very 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 fun okay i was always wondering that so okay right i've learned something new today okay um so is that on is that on instagram and, and twitter? twitter yeah will bomb 90 nine zero good stuff uh well listeners will put a link to that uh, in the description as long along with his podcast what you talking about willis um but yeah i think that wraps it up for this episode of passing shot meets listeners i hope you've really enjoyed kind of listening to this uh, remember to subscribe to the passing shot to keep up to date uh, on all of the tennis this season whether you're on apple Podcasts, spotify overcast cast box stitcher wherever you listen to your podcast make sure to subscribe to the passing shot and if you have been enjoying listening to us on apple Podcasts, make sure to leave us a rating and comment and you can follow us on social media we are on twitter instagram and facebook at passing shot pod uh, so do get on get in touch with us on there give us a like give us a follow subscribe to us if you haven't already and if you'd like to get in touch via email you can do so passing shot pod at gmail.com 
Yes. And uh, finally, Marcus Willis, thank you for coming on for our latest edition of Passing Short Meets. It's been really great having you on um, talking talking tennis with you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a really nice, insightful chat, actually. Some of the, some, sometimes you, you go on and you just get asked... Uh, what was it like playing Roger Federer? And and that's it. And that's what that's what you've got to work with. So it was, it was nice having a, a, good, a good chat about a variety of things. No worries. And uh, yeah, listeners, we will be back uh, later, I think next week, back on the tour, back with a tour catch up on the Miami Open. So hope you can join us for that one. But in the meantime, thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.